Good evening, church. Greetings and salutations to you. I hope all is well, and I will try to speak up tonight because it's been so long since I've preached. I'm just not real sure what kind of volume I'm going to have. (laughs) But I'm thrilled to be able to be here and to be able to stand before you and deliver another message from God's holy and inspired word. And I hope it's a blessing to you tonight as we study together. Um, And that's what we're going to try to do is uh, find out more about what God's word says. The title of my lesson tonight is Congregation Killers. Not serial killers. (laughs) congregation killers and uh, I want to start with a quote very famous quote it says America will never be destroyed from the outside if we falter and lose our freedoms it will be because we destroyed ourselves this quote is often attributed to Abraham Lincoln there's just one problem he never said it (laughs) okay uh, it, uh, it has become such a, a part of our national identity, I guess, that people have accepted that Abraham Lincoln said that, but he did not. Here's the actual quote. At what point, then, is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever reach us, it must come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. He made that part of his speech uh, known as the Lyceum, if I'm pronouncing that right, Lyceum Address in Springfield, Illinois on January the 27th, 1838. Now, Why in the world would I use a quote from Abraham Lincoln that's uh, so old (laughs) and so seemingly uh, has nothing to do with the church? Well, I think uh, that it's important to notice uh, that this fake quote, even though cited 4,000 times, uh, uh, again, has become part of our national identity. Uh, And the... uh, False claims of its author uh, have been accepted as well. But a falsehood, no matter how many times it's repeated, never becomes the truth. There are some things in this quote, though, even though misattributed to Lincoln, that I believe present a truth about every congregation of the Lord's people. If this or any congregation of the Lord's people is ever destroyed, it will never be from external attack. It will come from within. And I believe that the scriptures bear this out, and we're going to try to show that, but let's talk about the origin. of the, why, why is he teaching on this lesson? Well, a few Wednesday nights ago, I got to, I got to cover for Randy while he was recuperating from his surgery, Uh, He's been talking about ancient church history, and so I thought that it would be a good idea that he was talking about, since he was talking about ancient church history, that I would come up with a lesson called The Church That Hell Cannot Stop. Um, In that lesson, we talked a little bit about the eternal nature of the church, 
and how Jesus taught that nothing could prevent him from building that church. It's his church, and nothing could prevent him from building it. And we took the text, Matthew 16, verse 18, And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, students of the Bible know that the word hell as it is presented in this passage of Scripture is not the place of eternal torment. It is Hades, the realm of the dead. And what Jesus was saying is, even though they're going to kill me, it's not going to stop me from establishing, from building my church, which is my kingdom. Uh, and he set about and did exactly what he said he would do. Death could not stop him. Death could not prevent him. So if death could not prevent Jesus from building his church, surely it can be said that not even death can destroy his church. If the church can be built in spite of death, then the church should be able to live eternally in spite of death. Now, the puzzling thing is that we all know of congregations that don't exist anymore. We've all seen churches go by the wayside. Uh, congregations go by the wayside. Um, and so, in that lesson, I know this is a little bit smaller print, but I'm going to kind of just move right through this. In that, in that class, we discussed the identity of the church that Jesus built. And the admissions, uh, some characteristics, some traits of that church. For example, the mission of the church is to make known the wisdom of God. The church is the pillar and the ground of truth. The purpose of the church is to glorify God the way he wants to be glorified. It's not just a shouting of hallelujah because we feel like shouting hallelujah. It's glorifying God the way he wants to be glorified. He has the right to make those rules. If you're going to glorify me, this is the way you need to do it. That's what the Bible presents. The church that Jesus established, he is the only head of that church. The true, uh, true unity is found in the church. There's neither bond nor free. There's, there's neither Greek nor Jew. There's neither male nor female in Christ, in his kingdom. Because true unity exists and prevails. It is the mission of the church to save others. And it is the church that will be delivered up on the final day. When Jesus returns in his glory, he is going to offer up the church as a spotless bride to his heavenly father. And we want to be a part of that great day. So the indication is that the church is going to last forever. At least until the final day when it is delivered up. So why are there so many congregations falling by the wayside? Why are so many congregations coming to an end? While it is true there's nothing can destroy the church of our dear Lord... That does not mean that every congregation is invulnerable. There are very definitely things that can destroy a congregation, and as we have all seen. So hence the quote that we started from this, this evening. If we fall, it's not going to come from external attack. It's going to come from within. The congregation of the Lord's church that meets here will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter... If we lose our freedoms in Christ, 
it will be because we destroyed ourselves. And so we want to avoid that. If we arm ourselves with the knowledge of the things that might attack us from the inside, we should be able to prevent them. And so one of the, the first things that we want to talk about as far as internal problems is misguided allegiance. That is, when individual personalities become more important than the unity of the congregation. Perfect example of that is found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 11, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, what we see in that particular passage of Scripture is that people were taking the person who taught them in the Lord, the person that taught them what they needed to do to obey the gospel, the person that brought them to Christ became more important than the Christ they served. And they forgot the things that were essential to unity in the church. We've all seen congregations divided and destroyed because some individual led them away from their commitment to Christ only to follow some new doctrine designed to make them followers of men. This is not confined to preachers, although preachers have been known to do it. It includes individuals who have an agenda and desire the preeminence in a congregation. They seek to divide, to have things their way, to gain a following. And we must constantly be aware of this danger. I remember as a young preacher, the first congregation I preached at, there was a man who decided on his own that uh, a preacher should only be at a congregation for five years. Now, I don't know where he came up with the number five. I don't know why that was the limitation, but no preacher should ever stay with a congregation more than five years. So what he did, after my fifth anniversary of being at that congregation, was he started going around. That preacher's been here long enough, hasn't he? Well, he's been here five years. Do you think we need to keep him? And he just started putting little, little doubts, little comments, little, little digs in people's ears, trying to build up a following so that when the next men's business meeting took place, they could vote that it was time for me to move on. Now, the good news is, nobody listened to him. The better news is, he repented of that and asked for my forgiveness and the congregation's forgiveness for stirring up trouble. But that could have very easily turned into something that was ugly and could have very easily caused the destruction of the congregation, or at least the division of the congregation. And those are the kind of things that we need to watch out for the misguided allegiance. Second thing we need to talk about as far as things that could happen from within that might destroy us is the tolerance and acceptance of immorality. Now again, we turn to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. 
It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from you, from among you. So here you have an immorality that is taking place inside the congregation at Corinth and the Corinthians should have been ashamed of that behavior. You would think that the rejection of such ungodliness would be a given, but there were actually people there who were proud of their tolerance of that sin. They thought it made them something special because they were willing to not just overlook, but accept that immorality. Sexual immorality or sin of any type cannot be tolerated in the Lord's church. What is overlooked today will be accepted tomorrow. And what is accepted tomorrow will be approved in the near future. As our brother Randy often says, in I can't even say it now. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's frustrating to know that there are things that are taking place in a congregation that are ungodly and immoral and nobody is taking a stand to get against it. Insidious incrementalism. I got it out. I had to get it around my eye teeth where I could see it. And that was a problem that plagued Corinth and could have very well destroyed the congregation. By the time we get to 2 Corinthians, they dealt with the problem, and that's the good news, dealing with the problem. So we need to make sure that, that sin of any type, not just sexual immorality, but sin of any type is not just overlooked or ignored. And then a third problem um, that could very easily cause problems in the Lord's church is the mistreatment of one another. Now, Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter uh, three, uh, excuse me, five and verse 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. And I, I just read the wrong verse. Galatians 5, verse 15. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed of one another. Biting and devouring. I know of a congregation in Kentucky where two women, sisters, sit on opposite sides of the church building and won't even talk to each other. And when the subject comes up of their behavior toward one another, you talk about two hens scratching in the, <laughs> in the gravel, they just get downright ugly. Well, she did this and she did that, and they're always yayaying at each other. Brethren, it ought not to be. 
And going down back to the passage that I read just a minute ago from Galatians 5. For, for brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion of flesh, but by love serve one another. Paul's contrasting in Galatians chapter 5 the, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. He explains that such behavior toward one another is opposite to the love that we're supposed to share. After the bite and devour conversation, he talks about flesh and spirit. And then being filled with the spirit should prevent biting and devouring one another. And so we have to reach the point to where we understand and recognize the danger of mistreating one another. Now... That's just not at the church building. That reaches all the way down into our homes. Between husbands and wives and parents and children. Grandparents and great-grandparents if we have them. As members of the body of Christ, we have to treat one another in a spirit of love and kindness. Always. Lest we run the danger of self-destruction. And so, being filled with the Spirit should prevent such behavior. Now, if we turn to the books of First and Second Timothy, there we're going to see that Paul has compiled quite a list of things that potentially could cause division in the congregations where Timothy labored. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he warns about false teachers and false doctrines that lead to disputes. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, he warns about insincere faith. In 1 Timothy 1 and verses 7 through 11, he warns about improper understanding of the law and its purpose. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 19, 1 Timothy 1 and he warns about those who reject the faith and a good conscience. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 7, he stresses the importance of qualified leadership without which a congregation is destined to destruction. In 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 13, he stresses the importance of the attitude of a servant without which the spirit of selfishness arises. In 1 Timothy 4, and verses 1 to 6, he warns of the rejecting of the truth of falsehoods and rejecting instruction. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 and 11, he warns about the lack of godliness in 1 Timothy 6, 3-5, and verses 20 and 21, he warns about false teachers and straying from the faith. But he's not finished. He writes Timothy another letter. And in 2 Timothy 1, verse 13, he warns about straying from the pattern of New Testament Christianity. He warns in verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 14 about the words of no prophet. And that is... Not P-R-O-P-H-E-T, but F-I-T. There's no value to those words that he's warning about. In verses 15 to 18 of chapter 2, they warn about straying from the truth. Chapter 2, 23, warns about foolish and ignorant disputes. 25 and 26, warn about the failure to repent. Chapter 3 and verse 7, warns about the failure to know the truth. You get the idea that Paul was concerned about the well-being of his brethren and about the well-being of the congregations 
where preachers like Timothy were preaching because he knew that these things could divide and he knew these things could destroy. And that brings us to the seven churches of Asia. These congregations, at least the most of them, were in real danger of being destroyed. Not from external attack, but from in, from within, as they were struggling to remain faithful to the Lord. And so, as we see from Revelation 2 and verse 5, the instruction of Jesus is this, Remember there from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. <coughs> Excuse me. Make no mistake about it. There is a limit to what Jesus will allow before he, it, before he decides that a congregation is his no longer. He will remove the candlestick. And he gives you some reasons why. As you follow, as you follow on down through the readings here in, in the book of Revelation, look closely at the congregations under consideration. In Revelation 2 and verse 5, the charge is they failed to recognize the need to repent. In chapter 2 and verse 14, the charge is sexual immorality, false doctrine, and failure to repent. In chapter 2 and verse 20, the charge is false teaching, sexual immorality, and failure to repent. In chapter 3, verse 1, the charge is hypocrisy, rejection, and Failure to repent. In chapter 3, verses 15 to 18, the charge is arrogance, trusting in wealth, and failure to see themselves as they truly were. There seems to be a pattern, both in the churches of Asia as well as those that uh, Timothy was preaching for, and even in Corinth. You have the misguided guidance of allegiance and the acceptance of false teachers and false doctrine. You have sexual immorality and disregard for godliness. You have arrogance and self-importance. You have an unwillingness to practice sacrificial love. You have a failure to repent. And all of these can destroy congregations. Now this is by no means a complete and total list. We could go through all of the epistles of Paul and, and, <coughs> excuse me, and Peter and, and John. And, uh, and see very quickly that there are, there are other things that could lead to the destruction of a congregation. And as we've learned in our study of the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, Travis has been doing a wonderful job going through the book. But if you remember, I believe it was last week, he talked about the work that was being done, problems that arose, and then how they dealt with them. And so what we need to understand, first of all, is there are going to be problems that arise. We're human beings. We're subject to temptation. The devil knows our weaknesses, and he will put those temptations before us. So we know that problems will arise. The question is, what are we going to do about them when they do? 
The question we must ask ourselves as individuals, as members of the body of Christ, is am I part of the problem or am I part of the solution? Am I the one that's causing the trouble? Or, is I, or am I seeking to solve the issue? I guess the more important question is, how can I personally make sure that I am never a source of problems in this congregation or any congregation? I don't want to be a source of a problem. And I hope you feel the same way too. So how do I make sure? Well, it begins with a love for the truth and a willingness to obey it. We have to love the truth so intensely that we're willing to dive into it, to study it, to learn it, and to apply it to our lives. Paul said in Romans chapter 6, in verse 17, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. These people learned the truth, and they had a burning desire to render obedience to it. 1 Peter 1, 22 and following. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. They came to a knowledge of the truth. They fell in love with that truth. They rendered obedience to that truth. And Peter encourages them to fervently live that truth. So the first step to making sure I'm not part of the problem is I have to examine my love for the truth. My willingness to obey it. My willingness to live it. This must be also accompanied with a fervent desire to live a godly life. Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking, forward, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. I have discovered... It took me a little while to figure this out. Probably something you already know. If I'm busy doing good things, I don't have time to do bad things. Now somebody much wiser than I said something about uh, idle hands or the devil's workshop. You've heard that one before. That simply means the same thing. If you're busy doing what's good, you don't have time to do what's wrong. There's plenty of good to be done. 1 John 1 and verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. Walking in the light 
Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Now walk in the light. Most people who do bad things try to hide it. They don't want it to be out there in the open. They don't want people to see it. They don't want a light shined upon it. And so, we must walk in the light. So, love for the truth, a willingness to obey it. Fervent desire to live a godly life. But then also, there must always be a willingness for honest self-evaluation, both in what we believe and how we live. You go back to those seven churches of Asia. Everyone that had anything negative said about them, their end problem was a failure to repent, a refusal to repent. And godly people who don't repent might not be godly people. But people who call themselves Christians and do not feel a need to repent of sin might not, I'm not saying this is the case in every individual, might not have examined themselves to see if there's anything there to repent of. And so we must be constantly examining ourselves. Am I part of the problem? Am I part of the solution? Am I living my life to honor and glorify God, or am I just serving myself along the way? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, as he described love, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. In those few words right there, you have truth, you have removal of iniquity, immorality, sinfulness. You have removal of self-centeredness. Live the way God wants you to live. In 2 Corinthians chapter 15, verse I didn't get, excuse me, chapter 13, verse I didn't get put up on, the, um, on, the, on my board there. Uh, but he says, um, if I can find it here real quick. Um, verse 5 of chapter 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. Not the person sitting next to you. Not the other people around in the congregation. Not the people who are doing things they're not supposed to do. Not the people who are doing things they are supposed to do. Examine yourself whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. It's a hard thing to examine yourself. It's a challenging thing to examine yourself. Nevertheless, something that you must do. So, preventative medicine, doing all that we can to be free from causing trouble. The last point is very simple. 
There must be a humble spirit. It's easy to say, all fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. That's easy to say. It's harder to say, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's harder to look in than it is to look out. If I look out, and I look out too much, I can find all kinds of things wrong with everybody else in the world. And suddenly I don't look so bad to me. But you know, somebody else might be looking at me and thinking, oh, he's got a long way to go. For a while there, I was listening. Uh, as I was getting my exercise, I was listening to the, the Bible on audio, listening to the New Testament. And it was depressing. It was depressing because the more I listened, the more I thought, I should have been there a long time ago. I, I, I thought by the, by the time I was 65 and a half years old, I would be way further down the road to Christian maturity. And as I read the words of Jesus and I read the words of Paul or listen to them as I was listening, I think, oh, I've got so far to go. I'm nowhere near what I need to be. I don't know if you feel that way ever or not. I hope I'm not alone in that. Now, I say it was depressing, but that's really not a good word for it. It was challenging because it required an inward search. What is it in my life that I am hanging on to that prevents me from living this way, from being this way, from acting this way, from reacting this way? And I notice that I have a long way to go. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the, unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. A humble spirit, according to James, something is essential for every child of God. If this congregation is to stand, it will never be destroyed from without. We are too strong as a body of believers to allow some external force come in and tear us apart. If we are ever destroyed, it comes from within, or it will come from within. Paul warned Timothy about leaders, and he says, from their own number will arise false teachers. He's talking about from within. So we need to be aware of these things. We need to watch for them. We need to be prepared for them. How are we going to handle them? We need to know how we're going to handle them before they arise. If you wait till they're here, it's too late. And so we have to be ready. We have to be prepared. And that's why I decided to preach this lesson. I think we're doing a fairly good job 
of overcoming the things that might destroy this congregation. But I don't think it hurts to remind us to keep these things in mind, to watch, to be warned, to be alert, so that we can look forward to that day when Jesus returns. What a wonderful lesson we had this morning about the resurrection of Christ. And because he rose, he's coming back. Just as sure as that tomb was empty, he is coming back. And he's going to take us home to spend eternity with him as a gift to God. And we talk about giving, how important it is to give. But Jesus has provided a gift for the Heavenly Father. And it's you. And it's me. And it's His kingdom. What a wonderful thing to be a part of that kingdom. To be a part of that church. Tonight, if you have examined yourself and see that you might be wanting in some area of your life, not been living like you ought to live, might not been loving the, tr- uh, the, the truth as you should, might have allowed some kind of immorality or ungodliness or sinfulness to come into your life. You don't have to bear that burden anymore. That's what the resurrection, resurrected Savior came to do, to rid us of that burden. If you need to respond to the invitation at all tonight, we pray that you will, as we stand and sing to encourage you.